You're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Perspective Roundtable, provided in cooperation with the New England Journal of Medicine. Your moderator for this discussion is Dr. Atul Gawande, staff surgeon at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and associate professor of Harvard Medical School and the Harvard School of Public Health. Welcome to a Perspective Roundtable from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Atul Gawande a staff surgeon at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, and an associate professor at the Harvard Medical School and Harvard School of Public Health. In the August 14th issue of the journal, Busick and colleagues report on the three pediatric heart transplantations they did using hearts donated following the declaration of death of three infants in Colorado. These were dying infants who had severe neurological injuries but who did not meet the criteria for brain death. The parents in each case had requested withdrawal of life support and also given written informed consent for donation after the cardiac death of their child. So three minutes after cardiac activity ceased in the first child and only 75 seconds after it ceased in the second two children, the doctors declared death and removed the hearts for transplantation. These cases then raise some fundamental ethical questions and with me here to discuss these issues are Dr. Robert Trug, Professor of Medical Ethics, Anesthesiology, and Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School, and the co-author of a current perspective article on the dead donor rule. Arthur Kaplan, a professor of bioethics at the University of Pennsylvania, and George Annis, a professor in the Department of Health, Law, Bioethics, and Human Rights at Boston University School of Public Health. Professor Kaplan, what is the dead donor rule? Dead donor rule says we take organs, vital organs, only from those who've been clearly, unequivocally pronounced dead. So nothing will happen in terms of procurement, requests, anything, until you've got a team that establishes death. Dr. Trug, how in your own hospital and the way you've seen it done in other children's hospital, do we know if a child is actually dead and eligible for transplant? The ways that children die where they can be organ donors traditionally has been through the brain death pathway, where in children with devastating neurological injury, we examine them to make sure that there's nothing that's potentially reversible, to make sure that they're comatose, that they're apneic, they have no brainstem reflexes, and then we declare them dead while they are on the ventilator, and the organs are still being perfused by blood from the heart. Now, donation after cardiac death is relatively new in pediatrics, but this is where you wait until the heart has stopped for a certain period of time. There's been a lot of discussion about how long one has to wait after the heart stops before we say it is irreversible. And there has been a general consensus with very little data that that needs to be somewhere between two and five minutes. The rationale for that's a little murky, frankly. The thing that people often cite is that We don't know of any hearts that have ever started on their own again after having stopped for 65 to 75 seconds. But that's not to say that if you tried to restart the heart after two minutes, three minutes, even five minutes, that it couldn't be successful. And so it calls into question what we mean by the word irreversible, since the declaration of death requires the irreversible cessation of cardiac function By irreversible, do we mean that the heart could not be started again, in which case five minutes may not be long enough? Or by irreversible, do we mean it's enough that we've simply chosen not to try to start the heart again and 
That's the ethically relevant way of thinking about it. Well, so this is where it, it cuts to the chase. Did these cases abide by the dead donor rule? Well, I think they did not. I think they're trying to change the dead donor rule by saying that, you know, historically irreversible cessation of uh, cardiac and respiratory function meant it's irreversible, that you can't reverse it, you can't try. So the argument is, well, if we're not going to do it, if the parents said don't reverse it, then it's irreversible. Well, of course it's not. That's a play on words. The fact that you could bring the heart back here in your mind, just because you could transplant it in another child successfully, meant that they were not dead in your mind. It's not just in my mind. It's, yeah. I think it's the law. And uh, also, the, I think it's the most critical thing, and uh, Arthur has pointed that out, is to distinguish dying people from dead people. We want to take care of dying people. Dying people are persons with constitutional rights. Doctors have an obligation to take good care of them so they don't suffer at least and not to kill them. And dead people who are not persons anymore, have no constitutional rights, no rights at all, who can reasonably, with their own assent or with the assent of their parents, be used as organ donors. And that's always been the rule. Our question and the question that the Denver group raises is, should we change the rules? I think, in my view, the whole discussion about whether they're dead or not is really to miss the point. And I think that these cases from Denver are very illustrative of the issue because, you know, here you have three babies who are certainly going to die. You have their parents who are apparently highly motivated to donate their organs. You have three other babies whose only chance of survival is to be able to receive this gift. It's a situation where, you know, all of the ethical vectors are kind of lined up in the right direction. I think that for many people looking at that, they'd say, it seems unethical not to allow this to happen. There's only good things that can come out of this. And yet, we have the dead donor rule, which says that we can't remove these organs unless these babies are declared dead. And yet the problem is, is that the babies don't look very dead. In fact, everyone here is saying they're not dead. (laughs) And so I think that the solution to that has been exactly the wrong way to go. The solution that medicine and society have taken is to continue to tweak and manipulate the definition of death so that we can progressively include different kinds of patients under that umbrella. You know, to me, it seems that that's the problem and that what we really ought to be going back to is what's the patient's prognosis, what's the neurological condition, what are the preferences of the patient and the family, and we should respect those. And the dead donor rule, for all of its historical significance, really misses the point. What you would suggest substituting is a mix of consent from a surrogate most of the time for you to have your organs donated when you've had loss of nearly all of the higher functions, loss of major ability to provide consciousness in the brain. Wouldn't Um, that just be death by organ removal? Yes, it would be. But I think that there's two caveats that would be very important safeguards there. The first is a strong emphasis upon informed consent and making sure that you have the permission of the patient, if possible, before their injury, or the appropriate surrogate, if not. And then you don't want people committing suicide to donate their organs if they're otherwise healthy. So you need to have safeguards to make sure that this person has, for example, such devastating neurological injury that the loss of their vital organs is really no longer a harm to them. And under those circumstances, I think actually it's a much cleaner way to go and avoids all of the crazy stuff that we're talking about here in terms of how do we diagnose death. 
Professor Annis. Can doing away with the dead donor rule allow us to keep more people who are on waiting lists from dying, or at least some of them, and have access to organs if you follow something like what Dr. Trug is suggesting? Bob said, well, they're going to die soon anyway. Maybe, but that doesn't mean we could go in and shoot them, for example, to take a pretty gross analogy. That would still be murder. Right? The question is whether they're alive now, and then the next question is what are their interests? Bob would argue they have no interest in their organs. Well, I think a lot of people would contest that. A lot of people think just keeping their baby alive another day is important. And we did have this case years ago, the anencephalic baby. I mean, that's even a better case, if you'd say. The baby never had a brain, never will have a brain, has zero chance to survive, has a brain stem, which is why its heart is still beating. But we had couples, one famous couple in Florida, went to court saying that they demanded the right to donate the organs from their anencephalic newborn. And the court said, no, it's not dead. You want to do that, that's fine, but you have to change the definition of death to include babies born without any, a higher brain, just a brain stem. No state did that. It could do that. But we have never changed the definition of death. I think that Bob's wrong to think that we're playing around the margins of death. The definition, since the adoption of the brain death definition as an alternative to circulatory and respiratory function, has never been changed. The question we're debating is whether it should be changed. And I think it's very dangerous to change it. The whole area of organ donation relies on the public trusting physicians in that they believe they won't murder them or commit homicide. They won't hasten their deaths. We ought not underestimate public unease. I was in a room uh, last night of people and asked them how many had donor cords. And then I asked the ones who said they didn't. And it was not the majority, but it was a significant minority. Why not? And it's because they feared that they might have their lives shortened. And I think they were thinking about quality life, but nonetheless, the fear was there that they might be shuffled away too soon because a celebrity or a rich person or someone who could pay more for these operations would get it. So that worry is out there, making people wonder if you're going to cut corners on their care in order to salvage organs from them is a very dangerous area to be in. We might be able to do this if we can find what we're talking about in newborns. You start to take that into the adult population, I worry you're going to lose organs. You know, I think having practiced critical care medicine now for 20 years, I think the strong concern that physicians may give up too early, that I might not get all the resources I need, is something that we have lived with now for decades. You know, 30 years ago, physicians were not willing to withdraw ventilators from patients in the ICU because they felt that in doing so, they would be killing the patient. Today, we recognize that respecting the wishes of the patient and family is more important than those concerns about killing. And in that way, I think that the discussion we're having now isn't really new. But I am arguing that the decision is not based upon the irreversibility of cardiac function. Mm -hmm. the, the ethical justification is consent and prognosis. So it seems to me there, the difficulty in bringing this forward to the public is going to have to be, do you have the rock-solid evidence to be sure that the prognosis you are making is error-free. 60 to 90% of deaths in the ICU follow the withdrawal of life-sustaining treatment where doctors and families get together and they say, what do you think the prognosis is here? And then we will decide in those cases where we think it's not good enough to take away the ventilator and we'll start to give morphine so that 
if there was a chance that the person was going to breathe, they're probably not going to breathe after they've gotten a fair amount of morphine, yeah. and that patient dies, amidst great uncertainty as yeah. to whether they might actually have been able to survive the ICU admission or not. This is daily life yeah. in the ICU. Yeah. What we're talking about with these small number of organ donors is a very small part of the spectrum way off at one end where, no, the uncertainty does not go to zero, but it's at the edge of what we're dealing with mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. The new thing is that there's now this conflict of interest and in that when we're just withdrawing in the ICU without the option of organ donation, the only interest is the well-being of the patient, correct. and presumably we're doing it for that, and, and that's absolutely correct. We've now put a conflict of interest in, in that there's going to be organs coming out for the benefit of another, and that does introduce complexity. But I think that what we're looking for here is a little bit of national standard setting. Could we not get a kind of equivalent of the Harvard Brain Death Committee? Not far from where we sat in 1968, the criteria and definition, totally reversible loss of all brain function, the criteria to establish it were laid out by a blue ribbon panel that had national standing. You could certainly expand that these days, I think, to take testimony or have people come and talk about their views on this. But having an ethics committee do it locally and I hate to put it this way, but I'm going to. I think there's even some conflict of interest when ethics committees of children's hospitals that do transplants want to sort of set the standards on what the donors are. Well, it's a curious place to come to, though, isn't it, that a community-based decision would not be acceptable, but a Harvard committee <laughs> would be acceptable. I think the real test was that the Harvard committee had to be approved by the public Correct. because each state had to go Which one by one to, to change their laws. And when they changed their laws, it made transplantation possible. Were they wrong in Denver to have pushed here against the limits of our definitions? Did they actually cross the line to violate law here? But the law has always been, you're dead when the doctor says you're dead, as long as he makes that decision following good and accepted medical practice. It appears, at least, that the coroner was right there in the room. The coroner does have, have the authority uh, to make sure somebody's dead. So I don't think it's a legal question in that sense, but it's uh, certainly a heavy-duty ethical question. And a big medical practice question. I want to thank our three panelists, Arthur Kaplan of the University of Pennsylvania, Robert Trug of Harvard Medical School, George Annis of the Boston University School of Public Health. For the New England Journal of Medicine, I am Atul Gawande. You have been listening to The Perspective Roundtable, provided in cooperation with the New England Journal of Medicine. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air, 24-7.